Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you again for this, the entirety of this worship service and uh, all that you've graced us with this morning already. Now as we come to your word, God, let us receive it with harrowed, humble, open, receptive hearts, uh, grateful for your wonderful words of life. And uh, so, so thankful, God, that I uh, get to be used of you uh, to proclaim your word, proclaim truth, and um, build up our body, build up our, our spirits, build us individually and collectively. Thank you that we get to do this together, Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 8, dear people. We're getting back into this wonderful gospel. And uh, just yesterday I saw a bumper sticker on a, a pickup truck. And very clearly above its license plate it said, Jesus Christ. And I said, Amen. So I just drove up right behind him. And then I was thinking of Mark's gospel and what we've been talking about for this last while. And I wanted to add to that bumper sticker two little words. Who is Jesus Christ? Question mark. Just so when unbelievers come up and drive behind them, they're caused it like it was clear as day that you couldn't avoid it. It was like right there. And uh, I felt like that would have been wonderful to, to have that. Um, who is Jesus Christ? And as we've established through our study of the Gospel of Mark so far, we know that there were many opinions about who Jesus was back in his day. And even today, as you consider the people around you, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, fellow students, and uh, even yourselves, everyone who has heard the name of Jesus has some opinion about him, Right? And just like in Jesus' day that there were many opinions and perspectives and beliefs about who he is, few are right and many, many, many are wrong. For example, spiritual leader, a great moral teacher, teacher of ethics, a martyr who was a great example of sacrifice and love. Uh, He's one of many ways to God, which I've heard over and over. Uh, A man who did live 2,000 years ago, but... His life and deeds were greatly exaggerated by those who are his disciples. You hear all of those different opinions and viewpoints about who Jesus is. As many divergent beliefs and perspectives about who he is there are, there are also many different expectations about what it means to follow this Jesus. Again, many people today, just like in Jesus' day, had different expectations about the Christian life. And many people have different expectations about what it is to be a Christian, a disciple of Christ. And there's some blatantly wrong beliefs about that. For example, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? Which teaches that if you're a Christian, you should expect to have those things and in abundance. And if you don't, it's because of lack of faith or you're not giving enough money or because uh, you're just not doing it right, right? And so... Um, there's that. There's the liberation theology, which we've talked about in the past, which we heard a lot about during the Shepherds Conference, where um, just for all the oppressed groups of people, and almost every group is oppressed right now, except for white males, but um, every group is oppressed, and so Jesus is the deliverer of all those who are, who are being oppressed, and uh, whatever class of people or color or, or gender or whatever, Right? And so that's, that's another expectation, that Jesus is going to lift me out of that oppression. Okay, so others' expectations are not so blatantly off as those couple examples. Okay, some folks just kind of expect uh, being a Christian means you're going to have a comfortable life. Right? They expect that they'll maybe have a spouse and the 2.5 kids and the, the house with the white picket fence around it and probably a dog, right? Um, all the comforts and conveniences of life included. Hey, there's nothing wrong, actually, with wanting those things. But let me tell you, there's a difference between expectations and mere desires. Okay? So Jesus was progressively making it clear as to who he was. Right? He's making it clearer and clearer. Um, he's telling his disciples first and then to the population at large. These people who had differing, inaccurate views of who he was. And in our text today, he's making it clear that there's a cost. There is a cost to anyone who wants to follow after him. And he's telling them in no uncertain terms 
what to expect. What to expect. So there's opinions, and then there's expectations. And he summons the crowds to himself. He teaches them about true conversion, true saving faith, what that looks like. And as we went over last time, it involves self-denial, taking up your cross daily and following him. He's not trying to bamboozle them with some seeker-friendly message about what it means to be a disciple of his. He's not trying to sugarcoat what it means to follow him. He's telling them that they need to count the cost, the cost of discipleship. And he's telling us the same today. As we look at our own lives this morning in our own hearts, it's with this same consideration. Have we counted the cost of following Christ? What are our expectations here at Faith Bible Church? What does Jesus call us to give up for him? And what's his promise for all who do? Our sermon title is continuing what we started a few weeks ago. True conversion versus comfortable and counterfeit Christianity. And uh, part one was a few weeks ago. It was Mark 8:34, And the passage continues. We're going to finish up the passage this morning. But to remind you, in Mark 8, verse 34, it says this. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hey, again, that's not a seeker-friendly message, is it? Deny yourself, take up your cross, be willing to suffer and die and follow me. Hey, do all the things that I tell you to do. Hey, being a disciple of Jesus Christ costs you everything and he alone is worth it. The theme remains the same as it, as it was last time. But there was those three conditions of being a true disciple of Christ, right? Which is self-denial, which is uh, cross-bearing and following Jesus. But today, in the rest of our verses, uh, we have three implications of following Jesus that everyone who follows him or claims to follow him or, or, or says they're following him or thinking of following him, maybe you're not following him and you're thinking about it this morning. Okay? You must weigh these implications that Jesus so clearly lays out in the next few verses. Okay? If you are able to stand, please stand with me. These are the words of God, the words of Jesus. Mark 8. After verse 34, we're covering 35 to 38 this morning, part two. And it says, and Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Please be seated. Once again, these three implications of following Jesus that everyone who follows, who claims to follow, or are thinking of following him, need to weigh and the sub-theme is counting the cost of being a disciple of Christ. Okay? Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. So our first implication is from the first part of verse 35 and also verse 38. Okay? Beginning and end. And so, Jesus' precautionary warnings are to be heeded. In your insert there, if you want to fill in the blank there. Jesus' precautionary warnings are to be heeded. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And he follows up quickly with its corollary, but we're going to get to that at the last point. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And that seems a bit ironic. It seems counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make sense exactly. But remember, he's just told the crowd and his 12 disciples that anyone who wishes to come after him must deny himself, take up his cross, follow him. And this is his explanation following that. For because whoever among you crowds wishes to save your life, you will lose it. It's a precautionary, preemptive warning. It's Jesus' truth spoken in love. The Son of Man who will suffer and die for sinners, which he told the disciples right before, 
He has summoned the masses of people and he's saying to them, there's a cost. There's a cost of following me. You will be giving up your old ways, your old will, your old wants. He's saying if you want to hold on to those sinful ways, that self-centered will, those selfish wants, you're going to lose everything in the end. That's his warning. He's telling the crowds of people, these many folks who, as we've covered, as I've already said, they have different opinions about who he is. John the Baptist, Elijah, prophets, Jeremiah, a political messiah, freedom fighter, a social deliverer. Hey, with, with those faulty opinions about who Jesus Christ is, they also have faulty expectations of him. There's that word again, expectations. Someone who will deliver Israel from their Roman oppressors through political or military victory. Hey, that's their expectation. The vast majority of them, they don't understand, they don't know who he is as the Son of God, the Son of the living God, as the Messiah, as the Christ. The twelve are just discovering this, this for themselves fully right now. He's the long-awaited, promised one written of in the Old Testament. He's come to deliver his people, not from Rome, not from oppression, not from political, social injustice, okay? not from any of that. But he's come to rescue them, to deliver them from their individual sins so that they can escape judgment and wrath of God and be with God forever in heaven. Jesus is so serious about this that recall, right after he calls the crowds, right before he calls the crowds actually, he tells the twelve that he's going to suffer and be killed. Remember that? It's verse verse 30, verse, verse 31, right? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed after three days rise again. And so when Peter objects, remember just that cringy moment when he rebukes Jesus, he takes him aside, says, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And, And Jesus says to him, Satan, get behind me, for your mind is set on man's interests and not on God's interests. So the crowds, the people... The, the, the masses at large, they also had their minds on man's interests and purposes. Their expectations were earthly, temporal, national, social, political, personal, right? A lot of people coming after Jesus because they need healing and, and stuff. So again, that's not necessarily bad, but again, the, the, the setting of the mind on earthly, physical, temporal interests and not on God's and Jesus is warning them, listen, whoever wishes to, to save his life, to keep his life, is going to lose it. You try to keep your own life now by refusing these demands that I'm making clear to you, demands of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. Jesus says you're going you're to end up losing it. You refuse to surrender your life to Jesus Christ now. You're not going to save your life like you think you are. You're going to lose it. So think about people um, in your life, family, friends, maybe even some here this morning, maybe somebody listening on the live stream, thinking, I'm going to continue in my own way. Yes, I've heard the gospel. I've heard what they say at those Bible churches. You know, I've heard some some angry preacher saying all this. But uh, I'm going to continue in my own way. I'm going to continue my own spirituality. I'm going to continue my own version of Christianity, my own morality, my own immorality, my own homosexuality, okay, even my, my own sense of decency, my own sense of what is good, my own sense of what I think Christianity is, my own standards. Okay, it's like the uh, Frank Sinatra theology, right? I did it my way. Yeah. So think about that. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's someone you know. Hey, I'm going to preserve my own personal interests by staying away from, from Jesus of the Bible. I'm not going to get too close to what he's actually saying, but I'm going to interpret it for myself. And I, I'm going to stay away from his self-sacrificing demands. Jesus is admonishing the crowds, folks. This is a precautionary warning in love. And it's to all of us here today. The sure result, if you choose that way, is that you're going to lose your life. Okay? And more literally, do you know what that means? It means you're going to destroy your life. 
He's talking about soul eternal destruction. And this is the way of so many today. Outside and inside of the church, they're unwilling to truly surrender their lives, their hearts, their minds to Jesus Christ. They might even claim to be following him. I'm in church today, ain't I? But in the practical lives, they're clinging to sin, their sinful ways and philosophies and thinking. They're seeking acceptance of the world. It's this subtle but, but selfish ambition. Jesus is warning us, if that's you, you will lose your eternal soul in the end. And we need to heed that warning. He completes the thought at the end of this passage. Okay, another related precautionary warning, verse 38. I already read it, but I'll say it again. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. Jesus anticipates that many among the crowds that he's just summoned to himself, and even of the twelve who are following him, they're going to, when push comes to shove, be ashamed of him and his words. And, and for some people, um, it's not even going to take a push, and much less a shove. People are ashamed of Jesus. This, this word, episkunamai, okay, one of those intensive verbs. Jesus, it, it's to have a reluctance to receive him and his words because of fear of humiliation. And did you hear that? It's a reluctance to receive him and, and, and his words because of fear of humiliation. In other words, fear of what others might think or do or say, fear of consequences. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. This is a a continued state of being, right? Someone who is ashamed of belief in Christ ultimately is rejecting and despising him. Think about interactions when you're in just a, a group of unbelievers, okay? What does that look like? What do you look like? Someone who is ashamed of belief in Christ is ultimately rejecting and despising him. They finding Christ and his truths to be unacceptable. And it's not just talking about that periodic missed opportunity to, to share the gospel, right? Uh, to evangelize someone when, when you have the chance. And that's, uh, we've all had, all, all had those, right? Um, but listen to this. In general, Jesus is saying again, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. This is someone who is continually more concerned about the opinions of others towards them. More concerned about fitting into and pleasing this adulterous and sinful generation. It was back in Jesus' day, and every generation that lives is an adulterous and sinful generation. So they're more concerned about that opinion than about following Christ and his words and being pleasing to him. And Jesus says straight up here, I will reject you. I will be ashamed of you. This person has no part in the kingdom of God. Jesus is letting the crowds know, his disciples know, warning them that how they respond to him and his words and his gospel now is going to determine how he's going to judge them when he comes back. Right, folks? Jesus is actually coming back. He's, he's ascended, and that's, that's the promise that he's, he's going to be back bodily, literally. And this is the first mention of Jesus' second coming in Mark's gospel, and there's more to come on that. Greatly looking forward to that, but chapter 13 is the fullest treatment of that. So we have four more chapters to go. But Jesus is going to return to earth with much glory, with the holy angels of God. This glory belongs to God the Father. But Jesus, the Son of Man, also possesses this glory as the one who is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent as God the Son. And so this is King Jesus, right? Christ, the Messiah. The King's return is, is cause for great rejoicing for believers. And we look forward to that day. We eagerly anticipate the day of Jesus' coming back. But also, it's a wake-up call for the comfortable Christian, the complacent Christian, or maybe the one who's sitting on the fence and has one foot in the church and one foot in the world, Christian. 
continual shame over Christ, being ashamed of his gospel, embarrassed, so to speak, about his words, the Bible and its truths. Hey, think about all the issues that are out there, folks. Hey, the, the, the sexual immorality, the, the transgender stuff, the, the social issues, just all of these things. Hey, being ashamed of them results in Jesus being ashamed of you when he comes back, if that's your continual settled state. So J.C. Ryle has some stirring words on this. Listen. And he's talking about it's, it's sin to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Quote, the wickedness of being ashamed of Christ is very great. It is a proof of unbelief. It shows that we care more for the praise of men who we can see than that of God whom we cannot see. It is a proof of ingratitude. It shows that we fear confessing Christ before man who was not ashamed to die for us upon the cross. End quote. And those are very stirring, piercing words. And uh, John Piper also has some intriguing, helpful words here. Listen, quote, what's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving to be identified with them. Isn't that true? To, to be unashamed, right? So Jesus is saying, if you're embarrassed by me and the price I paid for you, and he mentions, he's not referring to lapses of courage when you don't share your faith, but a settled state of your heart towards Jesus. Okay? If you're not proud of me and you don't cherish me, what I did for you, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you and you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. End quote. And do you see why we call this a, a precautionary warning? If that describes you, folks, you need to heed Jesus' words. And he says it again in Matthew 10 in a little different way. 10, 32, 33. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. These are Christ's precautionary, preemptive warnings, sobering truths to heed this morning. Hey, we need to count the cost, measure the weight of being Jesus' disciple. The second implication of following Christ that we all must weigh together today from the text is verses 36 and 37. Jesus' probing questions should be contemplated. Jesus' probing questions should be contemplated. He asks, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Indeed, Jesus loves the people too much okay, to soft-pedal the issue and just remain on a, a surface level, a superficial level, as he calls people to himself. He gets to the heart of the matter. He's reasoning on the level of their, their minds. He's appealing to at the level of their souls and about the reality of eternity. Hey, you remember Ecclesiastes 3.11, right? God has set eternity in the heart of man. Hey, we are all aware to some degree that there's more to life than just our short time here on earth. Hey, this is not what it's all about. God has made us with souls and hearts and spirits that on, on some level knows that there's something more. Something more. In our sin-fallen state, though, we go against that instinct. We go against that nature, that eternal awareness that God has put in us. And we gravitate towards all these temporal desires, these earthly things, these worldly things that, that promise satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. But the problem is, the problem is that, okay, the problem is not that those temporal, earthly, worldly things don't ever deliver any satisfaction. Okay, the promise is, I mean, the problem is, is that they do. They do. They do provide some level of satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. And think about, think about even gaining a part of the whole world. Hey, just a small part. Wouldn't it be really satisfying? 
Like, just to have enough money, not to need to worry if there's going to be enough money to, to pay the mortgage, to pay the rent, to pay for food and good food because everyone's a foodie nowadays, right? Car payments, insurance, mechanics, gas, gas. Somebody said that Tom Brady unretired because of the rising gas prices. Okay, college, doctor's bills, um, medication, repairs around the house, hobbies, vacations, retirement. Hey, wouldn't it be wonderful to gain that level of ease in life where you don't have to worry about those things? Okay, what about gaining the whole world? Okay, that would be anything and everything that the heart desires. Okay, using your life to gain that and actually achieving it. How great would that be? Okay, to live like these celebrities we hear about, these sports athletes who are making $40 million a year, $50 million a year. Okay, accumulating enough money to, to literally do whatever they want. Anything they want, they can do it. They can wear whatever they want. They can spend time with whoever they want. They can go literally wherever they want. Some of these people, they buy islands. And, and just also literally whenever they want. We think of King Solomon and all that he had as the most prosperous king on earth. He's one of those people. He had everything, and not just everything, but everything in abundance and excess. Power, popularity, possessions, respect, wealth, women. The world was his oyster. And yet, the point in his inspired writing in the book of Ecclesiastes at the end is that, well, throughout actually, is that it's not enough. And it's never enough. And it's never going to be enough. All of that combined does not satisfy the human soul in the end. It's actually futility. It's like chasing after the wind. It's ultimate emptiness of heart. It's vanity. It's vanity of vanities. And some learn this the hard way. A story that um, Adrian Rogers tells about Ernest Hemingway, who was a remarkable man. He won a Pulitzer Prize. He won a Nobel Prize. A young reporter. He was already a reporter when World War I started. And he went to the front and was wounded in Italy. He came back and had an exciting life as a big game hunter. He was a bullfighter. He was a sports fisherman fishing for marlin. When World War II came, he didn't want to be left out of that, so he took his fishing boat and he rigged it with two 50 caliber machine guns, bazookas, hand grenades, and he'd cruise off the coast of Cuba, hoping that a German U-boat would surface. His hope was that he himself would move toward them and machine guns firing, and uh, he had plans to lob a grenade down the, the opening, the, the hatch of the U-boat, uh, to sink it. Okay? A very daring man, uh, one might say. He was in multiple airplane accidents. He was hit by a taxi. He had all kinds of escapades. He was wounded in war. He lived in France. He lived in Italy. He lived in Cuba. He lived in Key West. He lived in Idaho. He was a man that did everything. But he abused himself with alcohol, and he became a slave to alcohol. He went through four marriages. He said, finally, at the end of all this, as he was thinking about his life, Hey, Ernest Hemingway, this great esteemed novelist, this great author, he said, it seems that we are ants on the end of a burning log. And how did he end it all? And he ended it all by shooting himself in the head. So this is a man who did so much, seeking everything, seeking everywhere, finding lots of things, adventure. A man who had a full life, but at the same time, an empty life. His life was filled with futility, vanity, and no ultimate purpose. We're like ants on the end of a burning log, an empty life. So we might hear those things and say, wow, yeah, that's, that's pretty tragic. That's, that's sad. And we think, well, you know, I, I, I'm not like that. I would never get that carried away with so much stuff and extremes like like someone like him. But my point is that our own 
earthbound interests, they don't die easily, do they? They don't die easily. They might not come near to the level of Hemingway's extremes, but, but what do we chase after day after day after day? Okay. Many times we seek these temporary worldly satisfactions. Okay. For just, just for example today, the endless temptations towards superficial, momentary ease, convenience, comfortability, entertainment, and the Lord's question is, what do you hope to gain? See, the thing is that many people don't end up like Hemingway. They, they don't end up in utter misery and end up taking, taking their own life in the end. Um, many who have rejected Christ in the gospel like he did, they, they, they die in a more natural way after living a relatively modest, even happy life. But their end is just as tragic because they too have lost their opportunity to save their lives, save their souls by trusting in Jesus. And the Bible clearly states once again, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. And there's no second chance at it, folks. There's no second chance. So the question again, are these earthly pursuits of ours, are, are they not to the detriment of our souls? of our real soul enrichment, true spiritual enjoyments, and experiential knowledge of God that is, that's part of the eternity that He's placed in our hearts for it to be fulfilled and satisfied by a knowledge of Him. Jesus asked, What good will it do if you gain everything this world has to offer, everything of your earthly interests, and yet you give up your eternal soul, knowing God? This is the reason I made you in the first place. You were made for far more than that. And you know it. You know it. And yet you're giving up the eternal riches that I promise for everything else. C.S. Lewis compared it to a a child on the seashore who's settling for, for eating mud pies when there's literally a king's banquet of delicious, rich, and a variety of foods uh, being offered. It's worth contemplating Jesus' question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Alca Indians in Ecuador, he considered this question deeply. In a now-famous journal entry as a young 22-year-old man, he was on fire for God. Okay, this was uh, back like seven, eight years before. He was speared and killed by the very people he aimed to serve with the gospel. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, you give what you cannot keep anyway. Okay? All this stuff, even your own life, and you surrender it to Christ completely following Him in order to gain what you cannot lose, which is God's promise. You will gain, you will keep your eternal life, your eternal soul, that promise. Okay, that's, that's not foolish, Jim Elliott is saying. That is true wisdom. Okay, that's, that's heeding the conclusion of the wisest of the wise, King Solomon again. Fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. What Jim Elliot said was heeding the words of King Jesus himself. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. We'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus has one more follow-up question that, that we need to contemplate. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? As in, is there anything that is more valuable than your eternal soul? Is there anything worth more than your eternal life? What is more precious or significant than that which will last forever and ever and ever? The things of this earth all rust or they're destroyed or they fade away. Listen, folks, even people's opinion of us. 
but not so with our everlasting souls before God, the God who made us. So the inferred question is, what is worth pursuing now more than Christ, and more than his words, more than his gospel, more than what will benefit and fulfill and bring delight to your soul? And I like the way Ray Comfort asked those he's evangelizing. Okay, after he shared the gospel with them, appealing to their hearts and minds, he says, he says, would you give up your eyes for a million dollars? So would you give up your, your ears for two million? And the, the answer is no, of course not. And we all recognize the preciousness of our sight. We all recognize the worth of our, of our hearing. Hey, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't trade that for, for any amount. Hey, how much more valuable is your very soul than even your, your sight and your hearing? Hey, this is your soul, the very core, the very inner part of who you are, which will last forever. What can you give in exchange for that? Consider these things. Jesus' questions are worth us contemplating this morning. A man named John Harper, Pastor John Harper, understood this. And some of you know the the story of the Titanic. It's been over a hundred years since that happened. The greatest ship of its time, it sank on its maiden voyage, killed over 1,500 passengers. This unsinkable ship did just that. It went down to the bottom of the ocean. And uh, it's a captivating event. Many movies, documentaries, uh, interviews, books have familiarized us with some of the stories of the passengers that were on board. But not too many are familiar with Pastor John Harper, who was on the Titanic that night. When that great ship hit the iceberg, 39-year-old Harper led his six-year-old daughter to a lifeboat, and she was safe. And after that, Harper ran from person to person, passionately telling others about Christ. And as the, the, the water began to submerge this unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting, Women, children, and unsaved, into the lifeboats. And up until the last moment on the ship, Harper went around pleading with people to give their lives to Christ. But as the ship was disappearing beneath those frigid waters, several hundred people were left floundering in the ocean with with no realistic chance for rescue. So Harper starts swimming, struggling through hyperthermia to get to as many people as he could, still sharing the gospel. He swam to one young man and asked him, Are you saved? And the young man replied that he was not. And Harper tried to lead this young man to Christ, but the young man refused. So Harper took off his life preserver and threw it to the young man, saying, Here, you need this more than I do. And Harper would eventually lose his battle with hypothermia, but not before giving many people one last glorious gospel witness. And four years after the tragedy, at a Titanic survivors meeting, it was in Ontario, Canada, one survivor tearfully recounted his interactions with Harper in the middle of the icy waters of the Atlantic that day, that night. He testified he was clinging to ship debris when Harper swam up to him. He told how Pastor Harper tried to help others, but because of the intense cold, he eventually grew too weak to swim. But Harper came up to him, twice challenged him with the biblical invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And the man rejected the offer once, but Harper insisted. Yet given the second chance, miles of water beneath his feet, the man surrendered and gave his life to Christ. And as Harper drowned to his watery grave, this brand new believer was then rescued by a returning lifeboat. And as he concluded his remarks at that Ontario meeting of survivors, he simply stated, I am the last convert of John Harper. So John Harper understood the call to follow Jesus could cost everything. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Which brings us to our final point today. Our final point, third implication following Jesus. Jesus' precious assurance must be trusted. Jesus' precious assurance must be trusted. Again, Jesus is bringing reality to bear on these crowds. By the way, folks, Jesus is strong and kind. That's who he is. 
And his words are strong and kind. So he's bringing reality to bear on these many, many people who are around him. And they've got their minds on personal interests, on man's interests, on the world, on their families, on life, on on food, on, on rent, on the work, on job, on everything, on political interests, earthly pursuits. Life is a dot and eternity is the, the never-ending line. And everyone's got their minds and hearts set on the dot. Jesus invites them all to follow him instead okay, and gives them the real deal. He says it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take self-denial, submission to my words and my ways. Salvation is free, yet it will cost you everything. And he says, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. That's Jesus' precious assurance. That's his priceless promise. And he is to be trusted. He makes no bones about the cost of discipleship. We've already said it over and over. Okay, When he calls a sinner to himself, he bids us to come and die. But it's not to die in vain. And it's not to die unto death. It's to die to self and sin and to live unto him and in him and with him. All the way to much greater glory before the Father and other believers in heaven forever. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1. Peter calls it in chapter 5, verse 4, the unfading crown of glory. That's what awaits us. This is part of the great message of salvation because eternal life is that pearl of great price worth giving everything else up for. It's the treasure hidden in the field worth selling everything that you have for. It's soul salvation that Jesus promises for those who trust in him and his words of eternal life, which Paul calls an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 So do you trust him? Do you trust him? Are you trusting in him this morning that trying to preserve your own life, trying to hold on to self, holding on to earthly things and pursuing all those things that are going to perish, goals and ambitions, that it will ultimately cause you to lose that greatest of treasures, which is soul salvation? Picture a guy who has his hands just full of things. Hey, like, like me, after me and my wife come home from Costco and shopping. And they never have any bags, and so we've got our hands full with stuff trying to carry them back to the house, right? And let's say a, a random guy uh, comes up, uh, and he has a, a bar of gold in his hand. Okay, a bar of gold typically weighs about 25 pounds and is worth a million dollars. And he just randomly decides to, to toss it to me. Hey, what am I going to do? Just hold on to everything and catch that thing? Or am I just going to drop everything? Okay? My wife's favorite cheese, my favorite grapefruit juice, okay? all the stuff. I'm going to drop. I'm going to go for the gold. Hey, I want to. I want to get that. Jesus' assurance is that you'll have the greater thing when you let go of the lesser things. Do you trust Him? Okay? Are we willing to not just lose our life? Listen. But lose your life. If you're a Christian, this is, this is the implication. You're willing to lose your life for your Lord's sake and for your Lord's gospel's sake, the gospel that saved you. And as we consider Jesus laying out the cost of following him, it's to surrender all for him and the gospel. Are we trusting his promise? Listen, are we trusting his promise? Are you trusting his promise? that he himself is far, far greater and more satisfying and more beautiful and more delightful and more fulfilling than all these other things, than the whole world, and that everything that the world has to offer. And do we trust that in following him, we are called to follow his mission to make disciples by spreading the gospel? And we lose our lives for the gospel's sake. As we're doing that, we're actually gaining life. We're obtaining all those riches and treasures and blessings in the heavenly places that God has prepared for us, that he promises to everyone who gives themselves up 
for the sake of proclaiming His Word. And this is His precious assurance to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is His priceless promise to you, my dear unbelieving friend. Come to me. Surrender your life, which is currently mostly about you. And submit it to me, to my loving Lordship. You will save your soul. It says, lay down your arms, put down your self-defense, and come receive my embrace. Come receive my defense, my justification. You will find rest for your eternal soul. Yeah, I, I lay down my life for my sheep. I will suffer and die for my sheep. And he calls his sheep to suffer with him on that path. He says, I am the way and I have made the way for you to have everlasting life and glory with me. He says, trust me. Trust me. There's someone who trusted Jesus' precious assurance of losing everything for the gospel's sake and resulting in everlasting gain. Some of us have heard the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. Yes, I have decided to follow Jesus. And it's a Christian hymn originating from India. And the lyrics are based on the last words of a man over there in Garo. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. And as a result, many missionaries went to northeast India to spread the gospel. And that region, which was known as Assam, was comprised of hundreds of tribes, tribes of people who were primitive and aggressive headhunters. Into those hostile and aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from American Baptist missions. They were spreading the message of love and peace and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed, but one missionary succeeded in converting one of these Indian men and his wife and two children. And this man's faith proved contagious. And actually, as he told others about Christ, many villagers began to accept Christianity. And guess what? Um, the village chief was not happy about that. Very angry. He summoned all the villagers together. And then he called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or else face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down the two children. As both boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief asked, Will you deny your faith? You have lost both of your children. You will lose your wife, too. But the man replied, Though no one joins me, still I will follow. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. And he asked for the last time, I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said those final memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. And some might say, well, that was, that was a waste of life. That was, that was a tragic injustice. Maybe some are thinking he should have just recanted and, and saved his, his, his boys, his wife, himself. It was learned that later the chief who ordered those killings was, was so moved by the faith of this man that he and many in the rest of that village came to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so the song is based on the last words of this man named Nok Seng. And um, it's today the song of those, those people there in India. So this man is certainly in glory with God right now, okay, receiving now by sight what he trusted then by faith, the priceless promise of eternal heavenly reward in the presence of of his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And you know what? Even if that chief and the villagers did not get saved, um, he ends up in glory anyway. It's not necessary. It's not about the results. Okay? But the, the point is, 
he, he lost his life for Christ's sake and the Gospels, knowing, trusting that he will save it. So being a disciple of Christ, I hope we understand now, costs you everything. And yet, only the one who spoke these words, only the one who could dare to speak these kinds of words, is worth it. Jesus Christ alone is worthy. And he's more than worth it. And he's adequate. And he's more than adequate. And he's sufficient. And he's more than sufficient. So let us, in the strength of the Spirit, follow Jesus. And no turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your clear word to us today. In fact, the the words out of the lips of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is worthy. There is a, a cost to be a real Christian according to his standards. As J.C. Ryle said, there, there are enemies to overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Christianity, it's not us in an armchair and being easily taken to heaven. We're in a mighty conflict and it costs much to win the victory, but we're, we're praising you this morning, God, that ultimately your son has won the victory for us as we sang earlier. The debt is paid. The victory is won. The Lord is my, is our salvation. Thank you so much for that precious assurance, the priceless promise of Christ that all who lose their life for his sake in the Gospels, will save it. And they will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of their life now and into eternity, beholding the beauty of the Lord, meditating in his presence, worshiping you forever. And we look forward to that day, God. But in the meantime, we want to be found faithful. So help us, God. Help us grow together in this. For it's in Christ's strong name we pray. Amen.